Well, since it's the Christmas season, I'm going to assume that we are all in the gift-giving mood and mode. So imagine with me, if you will, that after today's service, someone came to us and said, I need you all as a congregation to walk with me down to the battery. And imagine that when we got to the battery, this person said to us, as we stood among the mansions there, um, pick whichever mansion you want. And we would respond, well, well thanks, but, but we can't afford one of these mansions. And the man replied, oh, no, they're all mine. Just pick whichever one you want. You can move in. And we replied, well, we don't have furniture enough of it or nice enough to, to, to put in a house like this. And he goes, no, no, they're, they're fully finished, furnished. And then we would say, or at least I would say, look, my, my 15-year-old car is not going to look good in front of one of these houses. And he would say, no, no, see that new Rolls Royce and that new Mercedes in the driveway? Comes with the house. Just move in and enjoy. And we take it all. And as we nestle in bed that night in our beautiful new home, what would we think of the person who had given all of it to us? And how would we explain why he came to our congregation and not another? And how should we respond to this lavish generosity? See, that's the question that should always be in the forefront of the mind uh, of every child of God. How shall I respond to the grace of God? You know, there may not be a more important question for you and for me as believers in Christ to ask and to answer than that question. How shall I respond to the lavish grace of God? I'm confident that the passage that we have before us this morning is going to help us know how to respond to the lavish grace of God. So if you have your Bible open to Deuteronomy chapter 3, I'm going to ask you to stand as we hear read together the word of the living God. And we're going to begin this morning reading in verse 12. This is the word of the Lord. Of the land that we took over at the time, I gave the Reubenites and the Gadites, the territory north of Aurora by the Arnon Gorge, including half of the hill country of Gilead, together with its towns. The rest of Gilead and also all of Bashan, the kingdom of Og, I gave to the half-tribe of Manasseh. The whole region of Argob and Bashan used to be known as the land of the Rephites. Jair, a descendant of Manasseh took the whole region of Argob as far as the border of the Geshurites and the Machathites. It was named after him so that to this day, Bashan is called Havroth, Jair. And I gave Gilead to Machir, but to the Reubenites and the Gadites, I gave the territory extending from Gilead down to the Arnon Gorge, the middle of the gorge being the border, and out to the Jabbok River, which is the border of the Ammonites. Its western border was the Jordan and the Arabah, from Kinnereth to the Sea of Arabah, the Salt Sea, below the slopes of Pisgah. Whew. I commanded you at that time, the Lord your God has given you this land to take possession of it. But all your able-bodied men, armed for battle, must cross over ahead of your brother Israelites. However, your wives, your children, and your livestock, I know you have much livestock, may stay in the towns I have given you until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as he has to you. And they too have taken over the land that the Lord your God is giving them 
across the Jordan. After that, each of you may go back to the possession I have given you. Let's pray together. Lord, we pray now that you would bless uh, the reading and hearing of your word. Uh, Father, we need your spirit to give us understanding. Uh, More importantly, Lord, we need your spirit to apply the truth that we hear from you and from your word to our lives so that we are transformed people, so that we live differently, so that we make different decisions based on the truth that we have heard and that your spirit has applied. So do that now in us and through us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I'm not going to reread verses 12 through 17, which is a great relief to you and to me. But as you heard, these verses describe the division of the land that became the possession of the people of Israel after they defeated King Sihon and King Og. And this land was divided among three of the twelve tribes of Israel, Reuben, Gad, and half of the tribe of Manasseh. But all of these verses are punctuated with this phrase, I gave, verse 12, I gave the Reubenites, verse 13, I gave the half-tribe of Manasseh, verse 15, I gave Gilead to Machir, verse 16, to the Reubenites and the Gadites, I gave. See, God is speaking and acting through Moses, his prophet, to give all of these good gifts to his people. And that's what the grace of God is. God takes what belongs to him and freely gives it to to those he chooses to give it for no other reason than it pleases him to give it to us. And so we need to consider just how lavish the grace of God was. It wasn't just land that God gave to his people. Uh, Within that land, there were towns and cities. We read about those last week. The Israelites took every town in the kingdom of King Sihon. Back in verse chapter 2, verse 36, it says, Not one town was too strong for us. The Lord our God gave us all of them. And then in Deuteronomy 3, verse 4, it says of the land of King Og, At that time we took all his cities. There was not one of the 60 cities that we did not take from them. And so the Israelites were not like the 17th century Americans who carved out of the wilderness of Virginia or New England a place for a home and then a village and then a town and then a city. They weren't like the 18th century pioneers who went west because of the cheap land and built homes and towns and cities. No, they just moved in to what already was. They didn't have a Mercedes in the driveway, but the cattle stayed with them. And maybe there was a camel or two beside the house for for their transportation. If we skip over to chapter 6 of Deuteronomy, we read this. When the Lord your God brings you into the land he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you a land with large, flourishing cities you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide, wells you did not dig, vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. Then when you eat and are satisfied, be careful not to forget the Lord. He gave it to them. Joshua chapter 24 says, so I gave you a land on which you did not toil and cities you did not build and you live in them and eat from vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. And so it was for these people as they relax in the evening in their newly acquired homes and listen to the mooing of the cattle and the bleeding of the sheep, possibly snacking on 
a little flat bread with some feta cheese made from the milk uh, of a goat or uh, a cow that they now own, maybe nibbling on a plump olive or two from an olive grove they didn't plant, sipping on a little wine made from grapes from the vineyard they did not plant. In that moment, they are experiencing the lavish grace of God. Now add to that moment this knowledge of which they were all aware. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your fathers. God gave just because. And so in this moment, these people are no longer living in hope of a coming promise of God. They are experiencing, they are living in the reality of a promise kept. And it's a a lavish moment. It's a good moment. It's an overwhelming moment for these people. And so the big question for them is this. How are we to respond to the grace of God? In that passage I read from Deuteronomy chapter 6, after God lavishes uh, all, all this goodness on his people, he says, Be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, and be sure to keep the commands of the Lord your God and the stipulations and decrees he has given you. In the passage in Joshua, God says, Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. So you see, the grace of God comes with responsibilities. We are responsible to remember the Lord as the source of the lavish grace we've received. We are responsible to keep the commands of the Lord by the grace he's lavished on us. We are responsible to fear the Lord and serve the Lord by the grace he has lavished on us. Grace comes with great responsibility. Now look in verse 18 of the passage we read this morning. I commanded you at that time, the Lord your God has given you this land to take possession of it. But all your able-bodied men armed for battle must cross over ahead of your brother Israelites. Now verse 20. Until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as he has to you. And they too have taken over that land that the Lord your God is giving them across the Jordan. After that, each of you may go back to the possession I have given you. Clearly, clearly, the grace of God is not exclusively meant for our personal enjoyment. God's people, clearly, are not to be grace hoarders. God doesn't intend that any of his people just be concerned about me and mine. God intends bigger things of his grace that he gives to us. Things beyond ourselves, things beyond our families. Grace comes with responsibility. And here God commands his people, who have already received his lavish grace, to go help their brothers and their sisters until they have received their grace, their inheritance, and their rest. The people of Reuben and Gad and Manasseh, they weren't allowed to go into their newly acquired home and shut their newly acquired door and say, we've got everything that we need 
and leave everyone else to take care of themselves. God did not lavish his grace on them to receive a response like that from his people. His grace should inspire them to say, we will not rest. We will not rest until our brothers and sisters experience the grace that we have enjoyed and enjoy the rest that we have. You and I, we have experienced the grace of God as well. Just as with the ancient Israelites, grace is God freely giving what belongs to him. Think about the life of Jesus, God himself, who took on flesh, what we celebrate at this time of year, the life of Jesus. It belongs to him, and he gave it up. It's my life, but I give it up for you. So that through faith in him, you and I can access all the abundant riches of God's grace, the life of God indwelling us, the light of God, the power of God, and on and on we go. You and I, people who have received the lavish grace of God in Christ, have enormous responsibilities. We are never allowed to shut our doors and enjoy what we have while the rest of the world figures it out for themselves. You and I are never allowed to shut the doors of our church and enjoy what we have here together and let the rest of the world take care of itself. By the will of God, we are responsible for each other. And I'm not going to read all the one another passages in the New Testament. They are too numerous. Love one another, serve one another, teach one another, submit to one another, encourage one another, offer hospitality to one another, spur one another on toward love and good deeds, carry each other's burdens, look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others, do nothing out of selfish ambition or in vain conceit, but in humility, consider others better than yourselves. I could go on and on, because there are plenty more of them. God gives us the responsibility for one another, and... God gives us responsibility for the world. I'm going to ask you, if you have a pew Bible, to, to turn uh, to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. It's page 819 if you are going to use one of the Bibles in the pews. A familiar passage to us, but one we need to hear over and over again. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us He has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. See, we who are grace receivers are responsible to take a message to the world. Hey, world, God will not count your sin against you. God will not be angry at you. You, in fact can become a a friend of God. And all the mess in your life, he can clean it up. He can give you a fresh start, a new start, a second chance. And God does all of this through Christ when you put your faith in him. See, we are responsible to take that message to the world. If we don't take the message, 
Who will? But is it any wonder that we want to shut down, (laughs) that we want to shut our doors and forget what's on the other side of it because it's overwhelming, this responsibility? But the responsibility, listen, it's a sign of how much God loves us and how highly he thinks of us that he gives us this responsibility. God thinks more of you and of me than to require nothing of us. God thinks more of us than that. To just give us everything and ask for nothing of us. If he did that, what would it, in, what would it indicate about what he thinks to us? That we can't do it? It's belittling and it's dehumanizing. To never be given any responsibility because people assume you can't handle it. To always be passed over, to have nothing to do, it's demeaning. This week, the Avance generously donated some greatly needed office furniture to the church. There were desks, tables, chairs, cabinets, conference table, decorative items, a bunch of stuff. But I had this dilemma. All these wonderful items were in Columbia. And as hard as I tried, I couldn't get two people who were available at the same time to drive the big rental truck up to Columbia and load the furniture. And of course, I defined people in my mind as two strapping young men. One person kept volunteering, Nancy Vinson. Now, Nancy is wonderful, but I would be shocked if Nancy weighs 100 pounds when she's soaking wet. So I sent this text to Nancy, still looking for someone who might go with you. It may come down to you and me. Nancy responded, what about Margaret Belton? Or Carol Clark. We can get some of our guys to unload before or after the tree decorating, right? So I'm thinking in my mind, great, you know, two more women. So I respond to Nancy, yes, but who will drive the truck? And this was Nancy's response. I always think I can do things until proven otherwise. <laughs> I'm like, woo! <laughs> she, she, uh, she put me in my place so nicely. Because I didn't mean to, but I was demeaning Nancy to dismiss her, to pass over her again and again, looking for someone else to give the responsibility to. Well, she showed me because Nancy called up Rachel Bradley. These two women together are perhaps the the tiniest women in Redeemer Presbyterian Church. And they drove the big old truck up to Columbia. The furniture was loaded. They drove the big old truck back to Charleston safely. And they unloaded everything except the very heaviest of the pieces. See, nobody likes to have it assumed that they can't do something. How subhuman it would make us feel if God required nothing of us. Well, I I would ask you to do this, but I know you can't. How humiliating to be viewed as only a receptacle to receive, but, but to never give back. Because eventually when people are demeaned enough, given nothing to do, having no expectations, no responsibilities placed on them, they start to believe that they have no value or no worth. But that's not God's view of us. We are created in the image of God. Scripture says so. You and I humans, we are the crown of God's creation. We are not created only to receive. God honors us. He honors us by giving us responsibilities, things he expects of us, because he knows that by his grace and power, we can do those things. Listen, we are so much better than 
living for ourselves and indulging ourselves. You know that? You are better than that. I'm better than that. Just living for ourselves. Just indulging ourselves. We're so much better than excusing ourselves. Being defeated by sin. And using grace as an excuse for that defeat instead of using grace as a source of power to have victory over sin. God thinks enough of us to entrust us with great responsibility. We can develop believers who are responsible if we will be brave enough to tell people the truth about the gospel and the truth about themselves. And maybe it's just a sign of our times that even in the church, grace has been perverted somehow to mean a a lack of responsibility. A lack of responsible responsibly living a life of holiness, lack of responsibility and and caring for others besides ourselves. My first child was born in 1988, 25 years ago. And when she was born, someone gave us a book that had been written probably a decade before. And this book was about building your child's self-esteem. And all parenting, apparently at that time, was to be directed toward promoting a healthy self-esteem in little Susie and Johnny, and making sure that they never, ever felt bad about themselves. They needed to have a good self-esteem. When I was exiting the teaching profession about 20 years ago, there was a trend going on. I don't know if it's continued or not, but we were moving away from assigning grades and making corrections. And English teachers, of which I was one, we were told, you're no longer to mark your papers, they're writing as substandard. You can only say it's non-standard, because if you say it's substandard, little Susie or little Johnny might feel badly about themselves. Nothing was to be done to make Johnny or Susie suspect that they were not the center of the universe. Listen, I'm all about a healthy self-esteem. Really, I am for everyone, so long as it includes the gospel, right? See, the gospel tells Johnny and Susie, you're not the center of the universe. Jesus is. The gospel tells Johnny and Susie, they're not perfect. Jesus is. The gospel tells Johnny and Susie that they're sinful, and they know they are. Johnny knows he cheated on shoots and ladders with his little sister. He knows he took the cookie when his mom said not to. Even at five years old, he knows he is a sinner. And Susie and Johnny need to know that that sin will keep them away from Jesus. The gospel tells Johnny and Susie that they need to admit that they are sinful and ask Jesus to take away their sin. The gospel tells Johnny and Susie that when they do that, Jesus forgives them. And they are adopted into the family of God. A son of God, a daughter of God, because that's just how much God loves them. You see, it's at that point, and at that point alone, that Johnny and Susie can have a really healthy self-esteem. I am the son of the living God. I am the daughter of the living God. Not because I'm so wonderful, but because Jesus loves me and forgave me in spite of my sins. See, when we attempt to promote a healthy self-esteem, Apart from the gospel, we reap the whirlwind. It's unfortunate that I'm standing up here because at this point I would get on a soapbox, but I'm already so high, I'm going to do it anyway. And we have reaped the whirlwind. 
we live in a time that's been described as a narcissistic epidemic. We are surrounded by people of all ages all around us who have the sense of entitlement. And why not? We didn't tell Johnny and Susie the truth for so many decades. We didn't tell them the truth about themselves and about the world because we were afraid that it would damage their self-esteem. Even the church was impacted. Kathy and I, we began church planting years ago. We went to all the church planter conferences and we read all the church planter manuals. And this is what we were to do. You're to go door to door and knock on the door or you pick up the phone with all these phone banks and you're to call people and ask them, what do we need to do to get you to come to church? And whatever it is they said, we were to do that thing. And so it's interesting to me that we, the ones with the gospel, we, the ones with the hope, we, the ones with the answers, were asking those people without the answers, without the gospel, without the hope, what should we do for you? What do we need to do for you? And so, of course, we now have a church full of consumers. Because after all these years of the same thing, they now believe that the church is all about them and all about what they want. The attitude is even reflected in our architecture of our church buildings. There was a time when the architecture of a church building spoke of the majesty and the greatness of God. The spires on the outside, the steeples, drew your attention upward. You walk inside, the vaulting ceilings drew your attention upward. The design of the interiors of the cathedrals and the shape of the cross to remind you of the sacrifice of Christ. Even the tremendous cost of those cathedrals and the resources and the decades worth of years that it took to build these intricately crafted buildings shouted, God is worth this. God is worth this. Even though, guess what? The seating wasn't comfortable. And guess what? Those sanctuaries were cold and drafty. And guess what? The sacrifice to build them was great. And I'm not defending the the building of cathedrals or, or whether or not they pleased God or not. I'm simply speaking of this. The vantage point of the builders and designers, they had the glory of God first and foremost in their minds. And the buildings they built were all about God and about His glory. But now, we have to please people. We have to design buildings where people will be comfortable, where seating will be soft, state-of-the-art sound, and even a place to grab a cup of coffee to take into the worship service with you so that you'll be comfortable. And so the design of our building says, oh, we want you to be comfortable. Our design used to say, We want you to be overawed by the glory of a holy and a majestic God, whether you are comfortable here or not. Saying that no matter what it looks like on the surface, the self-focused, self-centered, indulgent life, it is not the abundant life that Jesus came to give us. The life of living responsibly is... The life that Jesus described like this. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. When the responsibility overwhelms us in our own families, and our own community, and that responsibility will overwhelm us. When the responsibility of the world overwhelms us, and that responsibility certainly will, we don't run from it. 
We don't shut our door against it. We just simply cry out, Lord, more grace, more grace, more grace. God has designed us, you and me, by his grace and with his power to handle this responsibility. God has designed us, you and me, by his grace and with his power to handle this responsibility. You know our inheritance, yours and mine? It's absolutely as certain as the land given in this passage to Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh. The Apostle Peter calls it a new hope, a new birth into a living hope, an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you. It's certain. Jesus calls it a treasure that neither moth nor rust destroys, a treasure that Thieves do not break in or steal, and it is certain. And you and I can certainly rest in the certainty of the inheritance that's ours as we live responsible lives, devoted to others, serving others, helping others find the rest and the inheritance that we've been given in Christ. That's how we respond to the grace that God has lavished on us through Christ. And so while we are in the midst of this shopping frenzy, and when we have it in our hearts that we want to lavish on those closest to us, lavish on those that we love the best, we must remember how lavish God has been with his grace to us. Do not Be careful that you do not forget the Lord. That's what scripture says. Don't forget that Jesus came to earth to save you. Don't forget that Jesus chose to set his affection on you. Don't forget the Father chose to adopt you as a son or daughter. Not because you were so wonderful. Not because you were better than anyone else. Because you belong in the family of God. No, just because God wanted you. So he called you. And he opened your eyes to see how amazing he is. And how much you need him. Believer in Christ, God has been both good and gracious to you. Do you believe that? Does somebody besides Jim believe that? Thank you. It's true. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord. Because if you forget the Lord, you may start to believe that you deserve all that you have. You may begin to believe that you are responsible for acquiring all that you have. And then you may begin to believe that it's yours to do with as you please. And then you may shut the door on everyone except you and yours. And forget the community of which God has made you a part. And then you may shut the door on the world. But God has better things for you. God has better things for me than that. And when you remember the Lord, you remember that His grace enables you, empowers you to live a responsible life, to be responsible for one another and to be responsible for the world as a minister of reconciliation. And when the responsibility seems overwhelming, you remember the Lord again. And say, Lord, more grace, more grace. Let's pray.
Father, I pray that it would be true this morning that we would begin to be more and more aware of the responsibility that you have given to us, your people. A responsibility that you entrust to those that you know can fulfill the work that you require of us. By your grace and with your spirit, Lord, there's nothing that we can't do that you call us to do. But Father, we need you to help us take our eyes off ourselves. It's just the natural inclination of every human heart, Lord, to think first of self. But we need you to turn our eyes from that, to turn our eyes toward Christ, who did not think first of himself. He thought first of you and your glory. And then he thought of us, Lord, and how he could provide a way for our acceptance by you. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us by your grace to be others-centered, that we would not rest in the grace that you've given us, that we would not use it exclusively for our own enjoyment, or that we would use it to get out into the world with the message of the gospel, the message of hope. Particularly, Lord, I pray for opportunities in this Advent season for every person here who knows you, and loves you. Give us an opportunity, I pray, to speak the message of reconciliation, sins forgiven in Christ, that you have given to us. Lord, we will trust you with the outcome of speaking that message. Do this innocent through us, we pray now in Jesus' name. Amen.